moving into the, the, the bulletin, you may have been surprised, it still looks kind of Easterish. Why is that? Well, as I was thinking about this Roman series, and I was thinking, well, we, we've been three months in the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 11, and we have been moving to this day. Yeah, the last three months were for this. So you came on the right day. The last three months have been building in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 4. Chapter 12, that's right, you're tracking. Perfect. That, that, and, and, and the series, okay, we paused our Roman series to, to, um, to, to, to celebrate Easter and resurrection and such perfect timing that, that uh, we now step into that new life risen in Christ Jesus to walk in new life, to live out the new life that we have been given in our resurrected Savior. So how do we live in this new life? How do we, how do we live after Easter? That's a great way to think about or to approach Romans chapter 12. The... Um, the tone changes in Romans 12. There's been a lot that we, we've known about all that God has done for us in Christ, Romans 1 to 11. How that the gospel, just, just, just the first eight chapters again. See if I can still pull this off. See if any of you remember it. The, the gospel, for sinners, chapter 2, justified, chapter 3, by faith, chapter 4, in Christ, to new life, in this flesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that first eight chapters gathers up the mercies of God toward us. And then chapters 9 to 11 remind us of the faithfulness of God for us. And the mercies of God in his faithfulness for us, all of that leads us into chapter 12. That's where we're going to jump in this morning. But first, what if, what if the scam emails were right. What if the scam emails were actually true? That you were chosen by somebody you hadn't known before, somebody from halfway around the world had chose you to pour these great resources into your bank account. Couldn't be. But what if that was true? Your life would be different. Your life would be changed. Your life would be, be changed, first of all, because of these new resources that were credited into your account. Because of this, you would have new opportunities to consider that you didn't have to consider before because that just wasn't out there for you. But now, because of this, you have new decisions to make. Because of this, you also, there might be some new dangers. There might be people after you, or at least after your money, who weren't after you before because huh, you had no money, right? Your life is different because of that which has been given to you. Your life is now different through, or by means of, or enabled by. You're now able to do things that you would not have been able to do before that were not possible for you. But now you have resources that you did not have that through, by means of these resources, you're able to do things, help people, make impacts that you couldn't do before. Well, the reality is the scam emails are not true. 
So don't, don't give out your bank account. Don't think, you know, Pastor Bob said the scam email might be true. I'm going to take a chance. Don't do it. That is not what I'm saying. The scam emails are not true. But God's letter to you is true. God has written you not an email but a letter. And God has written to you describing of all the riches in resources. Call them mercies. He has given us in Christ. You hear the young one over there is just getting excited about this already. That's wonderful. That's, that's family together in Christ, right? So what, how Romans 12 starts out, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God, your life has changed. By the mercies, by what God has poured out upon us, which we did not deserve, we had no claim to of our own, but this is what God has done for us in Christ. By virtue of our faith, our trust, we believe God concerning Jesus. God, I believe you because that you say that your son Jesus died for me in my place for my guilt, to bring me into right relationship with you as your child. And now, as a result of that, you pour out upon me these great riches in blessing, a means and resource that I did not have by these mercies. Because of them, because of what God has done for us, and even through what God has done for us, the means, the enabled, that the Spirit of Christ That spirit which raised Christ from the dead dwells in us so that he might also give life to our mortal bodies. That we live new, we live after Easter in the resurrection of our risen Savior. It's a life that we we are enabled into. It's a life that is lived in response. And that's what we're going to unpack in Romans chapter 12. We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to look at those first two verses again. Live new, verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to have that living new as living sacrifices. We're going to apply that. What does live new look like? We're going to apply it to you individually. There's something here for uniquely you specifically. There is some, 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 something said to us regarding how we live together as God's family And there is something said at the end of the chapter, verses 14 and following, of how we live as unique members of God's family together toward others. So we're going to start a real tight circle, just you. We're going to expand that out into our family together, verses 9 to 13. And then we're going to expand that out to others around us. All of that made possible because of God's mercies toward us in Jesus. Let's begin in prayer. Father, would you lead us through your word this morning? Lord, there's more here that we can talk about at one time, but Father, would you open our eyes to see? And Lord, start a thirst now that would continue to bring us back even to this chapter over the next few days. Lord, that you would meet us here, that you would speak to us here, that you would show us how your mercies fill our life for others around us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that says, a living sacrifice. Jesus dies as a sacrifice for us that we can live his life for others as a living sacrifice. This is how we worship. Following him in denying ourselves for the sake of others, for others' benefit, for others' gain. A living sacrifice to live new. This is your service of worship, he says. To live as a living sacrifice is to not be conformed, but to be transformed. What does that mean? To be conformed, it has the idea of to be pressed into a mold or a pattern that does not fit you. It's a foreign pattern. It's a pattern that maybe you belonged to in the past, but it doesn't fit you, it doesn't suit you anymore. There was a pattern that Israel had as slaves in Egypt bound by Pharaoh to serve his agenda. But by Passover and in the Exodus through the Red Sea to new life, they now live free of those obligations to Egypt and free to live in worship to God. Remember Moses' words to Pharaoh from God. Let my people go so that they may go into the wilderness and worship me. That new life is a life of worship in service to God. And we're, con- we're not conformed. We're not pressed into that pattern of the world around us. We don't fit it anymore. The word is a, is a schemazzo. It has to do with a scheme, a plan, or for engineering technical types, a, a schematic by which something is built and ordered. But it doesn't fit you any longer. Not being conformed. How are people conformed today? How are they shaped and molded? It's really by who you hang out with. It's by uh, social influences. It's by peer pressure. It's by social pressure and expectations. Uh, Who you hang out with today, predominantly, especially, perhaps more than any other influence, but that which conforms you today is media. Beware about the influence of media. You know, Mark Zuckerberg does not care if you see your grandchildren's pictures. I know that's why you use social media. It's the only reason you're there. But Mark Zuckerberg, that is not his intention. Social media, all kinds of media that you take in is used to influence you in a particular direction. There is a molding going on. And I'm not saying isolate yourself. I'm not saying go go live on a mountain somewhere away from it all. But I'm saying be aware of the influences around you and do not let them shape you and conform you into somebody else's agenda. Do not be conformed, but rather be transformed. Metamorphe. There's that word that we get the whole caterpillar to butterfly thing metamorphosis. There's a transformation. That lowly crawling caterpillar is changed and is transformed through the chrysalis into a new life as a butterfly. And butterflies are better. I don't care what you think about caterpillars, but butterflies don't form these nesty webs in your trees and eat all the leaves and then make squishies all over your sidewalk. Butterflies don't do any of that. Butterflies just float. Butterflies are better. It's a great analogy. That which was simply impossible for a caterpillar to do is change into something related to the old and yet new and different. Be transformed. That transformation is something that is done in us and with us and for us as well. We submit to a transformation that God is doing New life starts. How? If, uh, if pressures around us can conform us, transformation occurs, it says here, by the renewing of your mind. 
It's changed thinking. It's a life reoriented around God's truth and God's mercies. All that occurred in Romans 1 through 11 so far, even as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says to prepare your minds for action. That which you do, the life which you live, the choices that you make start in your mind. And so we need to grab hold of our mind. As, as Peter says, prepare your mind for actions. Older versions translated, that, trans, translated the picture that, that he uses. Gird up the loins of your mind. It had to do with a, um, a, Roman, a Roman soldier, maybe, or somebody's getting into battle. Well, they would take the, 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 the tunic and they would pull it up and they would tuck it in so that they kind of almost looked like they were wearing a diaper. Their legs were now completely free, that they would quickly be able to move and advance and attack. No, don't, don't go, don't get off track. I didn't say Roman soldiers wore diapers. I said that they pulled up the robes so they could freely move. They were ready for actions. Peter says that's what we do with our minds. We, 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 we reorient, we recenter our minds around God's truth. What God has done for us. Where he directs us and his calling for us. And that's how our lives will be changed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. But this new life is not just knowing. It's not academic. It's not merely intellectual. It's not just in our understanding. It is experience. Life is meant to be lived. We step into it. It's that by testing you may discern or prove out in your experience that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That by testing, by stepping into it, by experiencing, new life is known in the doing. And so this chapter, verses 3 and onwards, is going to talk a whole lot about doing. In fact, in Romans 12, uh, in the first 11 chapters, there had been very little about doing. All of a sudden, you get to chapter 12, and it's all about doing. There's a laundry list of things to do. There's too many things to do. You're going to have to pick and choose. My aim here is that you choose something, that the Spirit points to something here. This is yours to grab and go with. That's what we're after this morning, that you, you may know in experiencing, in doing God's will, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, that was our memory verse this week in the discipleship groups. And so uh, in our group, we were talking about that verse together. And one of the guys said, I'm not sure what to do with that, that trilogy, those three words, good, acceptable, and perfect. It almost sounds like there's a good, better, and best will of God. Is that what's going on here? That doesn't seem right. God's will is, first of all, good. It is right. It is morally upright. You can never go wrong with God's will. God's will has an intrinsic virtue in goodness about it. It will be right, it will be true, it will be of worth. God's will is acceptable. By acceptable, it's acceptable before God as a pleasing sacrifice. The, the word is literally well-pleasing. In terms of a living sacrifice and a sacrifice of our lives given to God, think in terms of Cain or Abel. One sacrifice was pleasing and one was not pleasing. You have the opportunity, you have an immense opportunity, and that is simply to bring your father joy. You can bring, by submission to his will, doing what is well-pleasing to him, you please him well. 
You bring a smile to God's face. Parents have tasted this. You know, there are those times, and when the kids are getting a little older, you don't want to make a big deal about it because it's going to get weird, but when they do something that's just the right thing to do, and it's just what you've wanted them to do, and it didn't take any nagging on your part to do it, and they do it, and you're just, oh, that is so great. And it brings a smile, not only in your face, but in your heart. Would you think God has any less delight when his children step into his will as he has now enabled them to do? We have an opportunity to bring our Father joy in well-pleasing will, which is perfect. It meets the intended end. That, the word perfect here is that which meets the intended end, that which achieves the goal, that which arrives. Even as Jesus said, it is finished, it's the same word. It's done. The intention, the purpose, the goal has been met. And God has a purpose, not only for us, but through us. And his will is the means of attaining, of reaching his purposes for us, fulfilling God's intended purpose. We as living sacrifices are being transformed. And it's in the living as sacrifice that we are transformed. Our purpose as a church is to know and follow Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. That is in that purpose that we ourselves are living out the will of God as sacrifices well-pleasing to him, making use of applying by means of the mercies that God has given to us. Now, we, we live this out, this, this good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. We live it out, as, as I already said, in three directions, or think of it in three expanding circles. First of all, I step into God's will. I know the will of God. I, I discern it by testing it in my own life, in my own individual service, in the area that God has gifted me. Then, toward others as a family together in Christ. And then finally, uniquely me, in the company of others as a family, toward others around us that we would invite into God's family. That's where we're going from here. So verses 3 to 8, unique members of one body. God has given within the body individually gifts for each one. And he does it how, how he's pleased to do it. Look at verse 3. For the grace given to me, Paul was given a grace. When you talk about spiritual gifts, gifts, the word is charismata, and the word for grace to freely give is charis. So you can see charis, charismata, it's that which is given out of grace. So it's a grace gift. So when Paul talks about the grace given to him, he's talking about his own gifting as an apostle for the church. And out of that, he has something for the church, which is to say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure that God has assigned. For as one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. God has assigned different functions within the body. God gives differently within the body, just as he will. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. That's one of my favorite lines, actually, in the, whole, in the whole section. Having gifts, what? Sit on them. Having gifts, put that on the shelf. That sure looks nice sitting there. Having gifts, use them. And that's the implication of, of all of these phrases stacked together. And this gift or that gift or that gift or that gift. There's a list of them here. 
And it's not even exhaustive. There are more. How do I know that? Maybe I'm just making that up. There are three different places where Paul gives us a list of gifts like that. 1 Corinthians 12, um, Ephesians chapter 4, and here, and each place, the list is different. He includes some here and there that he doesn't include in there or, 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 or in this one. And I would suggest to you there's nothing that confines us that even the three lists combined are exhaustive. God has gifted within his body as he assigns for each. What Paul tells us here is that each one has been gifted. God has given you something in your spiritual life that's more than just a talent or a natural skill that you had before. God gifts you in some way as he intends to use you for the sake of others. Spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 are not given for our, for our own edification, for our own building up. They are for the strengthening, the building of others. Each one of us is uniquely different and yet is uniquely different in how we are gifted. And be careful how you exalt one gifting as compared to the other. Just the way is every part of the body is needed, parts that are seen and parts that are not seen. Terribly essential to make the whole body function. And when one of its something starts to go wrong inside there, it affects everything, doesn't it? And so it is in the church body as well. So there's all kinds of gifting. Think of it in terms of a football team. There are a lot of different positions, and a, and, and a good team needs all of those positions work. You know there are skilled positions in the NFL and there are unskilled positions or not skilled I'm not sure how to say that. They, they, they talk about the skilled positions, quarterbacks and receivers and, and uh, the, the defensive backs and perhaps the tight ends. Those are skilled positions. The people that handle the ball and don't drop it, okay? That apparently is an important skill in football. There are other positions like offensive line, center. There apparently are not skilled positions. That doesn't mean that they're not skilled positions. doesn't mean that they're not skilled. In fact, they're essential in fact, we've heard in this offseason, Russell Wilson saying, would somebody give me some offensive linemen so that I'm not sacked more than any other quarterback for nine years straight? If, if this team's going to do anything more than the first round of the playoffs, we need an offensive line. And yet that's a non-skill position. But it seems to be very important. So it's not a matter of what gift do I have and where does that rank and stack. It's, God, how do you intend to use me and how have you then, by your mercies, fitted me for your purposes within your body? Gifts are more than talents. Not natural abilities merely. Now, God will use your natural abilities. God will use things that you have had since birth, but he has also given you some things that are a result out of the new birth. Let me give you one example out of my own life. I wish I was a better communicator. I, 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 when, we were, when we were in missionary radio, I heard in the English program some of the best communicators out there, best Bible teachers out there. I wished I could teach and communicate like that. And now they've gone from radio into podcast, and they're on YouTube, and they're everywhere, and how's a poor pastor going to keep up? And yet... I'm not, I'm not at that level, and yet you see something of God's miracle every week. What do I mean? When I was in high school, I was saved when I was 17 years old, came to faith in Christ uh, just before I turned 18. And in high school, in, actually all through my school years, I really came out in, in 
It really came out in middle school and high school, however. I had a terrible stutter. I mean, not just that I would stammer over words, but I would lock up. I couldn't finish the word, thus I couldn't finish the thought. I would just lock. If I was in any kind of a public setting where there are other people around and other people watching, I would lock in the middle of a word. And worse than that, my mouth would lock open. Talk about, you can go ahead and laugh. Talk about awkward. It was horrible. So you, you know what I learned in high school? Be quiet. <laughs> you never know it now, right? <laughs> hey, I got a lot of catching up to do, okay? I learned don't say anything because the last thing you want to be is standing there with your mouth stuck open, hanging open around a bunch of other kids watching you in high school. This is not good. Well, they start throwing things in there. It's just terrible. Don't do it. And so I learned to be quiet. I learned to be the be background Bob, okay? And I, I had no intentions of doing anything. I, I, I got into electronics, and that's a skill where I could work with my hands and I could work with stuff, and I didn't have to say anything. And uh, uh, along the way, a couple years after I was saved, I was part of this Bible study. I wasn't a leader or anything. I had no intention of leading anything like that, communicating in front of other people. And, uh, but I joined a, a prayer group with three of the leaders and just to pray for the next Saturday's study. And while we were praying together, one of the guys said, I don't know why, but I feel like we need to pray for Bob. I want to pray for Bob, especially about his stuttering. We need to do that. God's, got, God's pressing on my heart that, that, that he has something for Bob that, that we need to pray for the stutter. And so they did. The three of those guys prayed for me. And I don't know if it was just the nerves of the moment, but I could feel my throat tightening. No, 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 it wasn't an anaphylactic shock or something, but, but I could feel there's something happening here. I didn't know what it was. It could have been just nerves. But over the next week or two, my stutter faded and faded and faded to about what it is today. As you listen to me, you'll still catch it at times. There'll be times in a conversation where, where I will block still, but it's nothing like it was. I couldn't have finished two sentences up here as I was before. And yet, a stutterer, stammerer who couldn't talk at all before others, God decided to give the gift of teaching. So I guess we're going to have to do something with poor Bob. He can't do it on his own. And that's what God does. So I don't know how he's gifted each one of you, but I know that he has, and it is his enablement. And he will use us in that. Well, how do I then describe discover what that is. I, I like to suggest three tests. One of them are these inventory type of uh, tests, the inventories I call them. Basically, the whole series of questions might be 80, might be 180. And uh, they ask you the same things over and over from different ways. And what that does is it surfaces an awareness that you have about you into some categories to help you to think about it. It's not like it's exhaustive. Well, after you fill out one of these, then you get a badge and you pin it on your chest, and that's what you must do. It's a good idea, but how, what's in your thinking can affect the outcome of any inventory, any personality assessment that you take. And so um, one of the great things to do is to confirm that with somebody with some spiritual wisdom who knows you. Somebody who knows you will, well, and maybe they couldn't tell you right off the top of their head what your gifting probably is, but when you said, well, this inventory suggested these are areas that, that are high in me, and they would say, yeah, that, I really see that in you now, that you now that you point that out, and they can help to confirm. Let me give you a couple of other 
cheap and dirty test. Now, now in the BP Blast, we gave you links to two um, spiritual gift inventories, and those two, two we chose because they seemed to be as good as any of the rest of them, and they also didn't put you on somebody's email list. Bonus. Here's a couple real cheap and dirty tests that you can also use. Priority test. What are the things that are most important in any church? If we did a show of hands and I called on different people, we would answer that question differently. And it's not that some of you are wrong and some of you are right. Well, the ones that agreed with me are right. That's, that's how it works. But, but your answer would point toward a particular sensitivity you have to needs within the body of Christ. That which is most important in any church is perhaps something that God has sensitized you to because that's where God has fitted you for service. Along with that is the critical test or the critics test. What's wrong with our church? There's the one we have fun with, right? But be careful. When you put your finger on what's wrong with our church, you have just put your finger on something that you need to do something about. Okay? Deal? Fair enough? I don't mind you thinking about I don't mind you answering that question. I don't mind you sharing with me your answers as long as you also know, and this is what I, th I think God would have me take a next step in doing something about it. See, it's a sensitivity that maybe you're given for the good of all of us. We live new uniquely, but we are uniquely members of a body. We live new together, and there's a whole description of ways that we live together. Let love be genuine. Love be real and authentic, not just somebody pours out their heart, but just a, a, a thing going on, and you say, oh, bless your heart, and you move on. Go get a latte or something. No, but a genuine care and involvement and concern for others. I understand that in the millennial generation, there's, a, there's an intense need for that kind of authenticity, that genuineness. You know, nods from some of the millennials. I, I suspect that's your parents' fault. That there was probably a lack of some of that in our generation, or at least as you perceived it, and you hunger for it. And yet, where does the millennial spend most of their time? Virtual reality. Huh. Authentic, genuine, in virtual, on-screen everything. You'll find that let love be genuine is going to push us into real face-to-face -face relationship with one another. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The love does not accept everything, tolerate evil, suspend moral judgment, go along to get along. If someone is lost in the dark, if they are in danger of injury to themselves, if they continue down a particular path because they can't see what's in front of them, love shares your flashlight. Love warns of the danger that it, that's ahead. Love guides them of where the path actually is. Verse 10 talks about love with brotherly affection. We are family, that we prefer one another or we put one another first in showing honor. That showing honor is the same thing that's used in Ephesians 6 where children are to honor their parents. And that's not little children are to behave and do what their parents say. It's older children, adult children are told to honor their older parents. Yes, I know your parents are always older. Elderly parents to honor them even in caring for them and providing for them the things they need as they get older. This contributing to the needs of the saints, verse 13 
and seeking to show hospitality. That showing hospitality, care for others, even of strangers, it says to pursue it. It's the same word to pursue like you're on the hunt. As is used in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. It's the same chasing after, pursuing, or hunting down kind of word. So you're to pursue opportunities to be a help and a blessing to one another and to others. Not just waiting for an opportunity that might come, but looking for, going out after, where could I help somebody? In small groups, often you have an opportunity to do that. As you're sharing needs, you're sharing troubles you've had in the week, you're praying for one another, those prayer requests are not only an opportunity to pray, but often there's an opportunity to help one another, to come alongside one another, to share out of what we have for the sake of others. We had that in this last week where the group rallied around one family with a particular need. And I think those, those happen. Just recently, we used to have something called Men's Summer of Service here at the church. And the men's group would meet on Wednesday nights. We had a Bible study through the year. In the summer, we would, we would pause the Bible study. We'd gather together. We'd have something quick to eat. And we'd go out on this job or that job helping somebody in the church. And we've shifted that now to turn that towards small groups. Those are small group opportunities that a group together can help one another. Somebody mentioned to me recently, hey, this might be a good project to help these people with, with the summer of service in the summer. And, and I said, well... Yeah, but you know, that's, we're actually trying to see that happen in small groups where there's a community together and they can serve together. And there will be bigger needs than a, one small group can meet. And that group that, that, that's aware of that need, that, that they can go to another group and say, this is beyond us. Could your group help us with this together? Now you've got two groups working together to meet a need, but there's relationships involved together in meeting a need, pulling in somebody else that might be needed for it. An opportunity for us to contribute together for the needs of the saints. You see, because we live this new life, not merely by taking in God's mercy, but by being channels of his mercy. I want to I uh, move into the third section with, a, with an image, a metaphor, if I, if I may, of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is a lot of fun. If you ever travel to Israel, you need to go to the Dead Sea. you got to float in the Dead Sea. Careful, don't put your face in the water because you'll scream if you put your face in the water because it's about 30% salinity at the saltiest portions of it. It's, it's nine times the salinity of the ocean. That's why you can float in. It's like jelly water. It's really cool. It's quite a, a, an experience. But the Dead Sea is dead. The Dead Sea is dead. There is nothing living in the Dead Sea. Nothing can live in that high of a salinity. Why is the Dead Sea dead? The Dead Sea is dead. It's fed by the Jordan River. The Jordan's a wonderful river. Well, it's more of a stream today because there's so much water taken out of it for agriculture. But the Jordan River flows down, and the Jordan River comes out of the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful, lovely water in the Sea of Galilee. Comes out of snow melt off of Mount Hermon. Beautiful water source. It flows down. It flows into the Red Sea. There's fish and stuff to live in it all the way down until it gets to the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, it's dead. At the Red Sea, it stops. At the Red Sea, at the, at the Dead Sea, sorry, there is no way out except by evaporation. It's one of the reasons it's so salty. All the water evaporates off down in the, in the Jordan River Valley around the Dead Sea. It can be 120 degrees in the summer. So it can be very hot and a lot of evaporation and the salt and minerals are left behind. 
There's lots of inflow. There's no outflow. Now, there's the analogy into the Christian life. There is lots of inflow. There is streams of living water coming from our Lord to us. Do those same streams flow out of us to others, or do they stop here? If they stop here, then it's dead. There's no benefit. There's no life given. We are to live as unique individually gifted, members of one body together who live together toward others. And that's the last collection of verses 14 to 21. Let me just touch on a couple of them before our time is gone. First of all, it says, bless those who persecute or hunt or chase you. Bless and do not curse them. You, simply by Praying for someone. Can I pray for you? Somebody's antagonistic to you. Somebody's difficult to you. You can pray for them. I remember a time me and a few others were, were talking with some other people, some folks that, that weren't believers, and one of them was especially being very difficult, very hard on the church, very critical and antagonistic and, and harsh about the church. Couldn't say anything good. Could only say terrible things about the church. And I could have argued with him. I could have defended the church. That's not what the church is like. But instead, I remembered a tip somebody had given me once, and I said, you must have been really hurt by a church sometime. You know his answer? Well, yeah. And so I said, well, would you tell me about that? And he did. He was surprised. I, I, I cared to know. But, but, and, so, and, and so he talked about it. He told his story. And my response wasn't to give excuses. My response wasn't to try to explain or defend. My response was simply to say, I'm sorry that that was your experience. It shouldn't have happened like that. But that removed that obstacle for him to consider the words of Christ himself that come through his church and his children. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There's that genuine caring, caring for one another. Live in harmony with one another. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, there's a tricky one. That, 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 that could use some explaining. Verse 17, do what is honorable in the sight of all. That does not mean do what the majority morality says. That doesn't mean go along with the, the majority opinion of what is good today or next week. No, do what is honorable to God. Do what is good and do it openly in the sight of all. Do what is good. Do what is honorable out in the open. Let others see it. Peter says, when they see your good works, they will glorify. Sooner or later, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Be willing to be different in ways that are honorable and ways that are good. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Blessed are the peacemakers. Own whatever you can. Humility in our own willingness to admit, I blew it there, I'm sorry. Humility is rare and refreshing. It is not always up to you. It is not always up to you to be at peace with others. Some people simply don't want to be at peace with you. But as far as it's with us, be at peace with all people. Never avenge yourselves. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, verse 19. Remember, if Jesus said, as they were crucifying him, nailing him to a cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. If Jesus could go there, then I can ignore a slight. I can just go right on past an insult or a snide remark or a looking down or somebody not respecting me. It really doesn't matter. If no one knows but my Father knows who I really am, that's what matters. Ignore slights. Instead, what if we are known for being forgiving? If we are known for being forgiving of others around us, that gains traction. Sooner or later, everybody's going to have some need of your forgiveness. And if that's what we're known for, that's attractive. To the contrary, verse 20 says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. <laughs> Love that verse, don't you? Yeah. You go ahead and get me now, and I'm just going to be nice, and I'm just going to say, bless your heart, and I'm going to be good to you, and I'm going to feed you and give you something to drink, and God is going to pour fire on your head sooner or later, and I'll be there to see it. Doesn't sound very Christian, does it? I feel like there's something missing there. Sometimes when it doesn't make sense, you need to back up and, 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 and read again, like maybe verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Maybe that informs how we understand that. Or maybe keep reading. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. People are in bondage to the evil ones in ways that they don't even realize. And our care is for them. Our conflict is not with them. And so the idea here is to continue to do good that is unexpected, that is undeserved. You know, just as God has done for us in Christ. And that may press upon their conscience. That's the image of the, there's a, there's a burden upon them. It, it lights a fire in the brain that troubles them. Why are they still being nice to me? In the first century, Christians were known as being different. They were known as being forgiving. They were known in the first century as, as being being selfless for others. They were known to live simply. They were known as being generous. They would even rescue the cast-off children that were left in the garbage heap to die. And they would take them in and raise them as their own. Foster parenting, anybody. Our society is broken, and there's all kinds of kids being left behind. Described in a letter in A.D. 130, so just early in the second century, a letter to Diognetus. Now, I don't know who Diognetus is. I'm probably not saying his name right, so my apologies to Diognetus. But his, here's how Christians were described to him. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet they endure all things as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all the others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. 
They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. More and more, we are rushing back to that kind of an era. We are rushing back to this first century. And yet, when we live out this new resurrection life as living sacrifices in that era, just as in the first century, it will turn the world upside down, at least for some. And it's those some that God sends you to, as he has uniquely gifted you for that. As he calls us then together to be strengthened for that, sending us to others around us, that we will know and follow Jesus in this new life by helping others to know and follow Jesus. The email scams are lies, but God's word, God's letter to you, to me, is true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true. So what it says about us, that you have poured out your mercy upon us. Oh, God, strengthen us in it. And Lord, if there is one here this morning that needs to receive, first of all, your mercy in Jesus. Lord, that they would pray even right now, God, the God who made me, created me, I believe you concerning your son, Jesus, who died as the sinless one, the guiltless one in my place for my guilt, for my shame. And that because of Jesus and his death for me, I can be accepted into right relationship with you just by believing you about Jesus. So God, I do that right now, right here, this morning. And Father, for each of us, us then who have received your mercy, oh Lord, give us the courage to live as living sacrifices, trusting you for your gifting, strengthened in your family, going to others around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.